It's Halsey with the Helicopter Podcast, and I hope you're enjoying listening to the podcast. But just to make sure that you are aware, if you would also like to watch the podcast, you can go to YouTube and check out the Helicopter Podcast YouTube channel. We post all of our podcasts to video format there. We're also doing a lot of really cool things over there, like vlogs. We did a bunch of fun stuff at HAI, including in-person interviews with all these amazing people. So do me a favor, head over to YouTube and check out the Helicopter Podcast. Hope you enjoy. This podcast is brought to you by Helicopter. Tired of listings that go nowhere? Exhausted by tire kickers who waste your time? Don't sell your helicopter alone. Helicopter handles the entire process from start to finish. So if your helicopter is sat too long waiting for a buyer, contact the team at Helicopter today for your complimentary market valuation. Call 1-855-SELICOPTER, 1-855-735-5226, or email sales at selicopter.com. Selicopter, list it, sell it, done. Hello and welcome to the Helicopter Podcast. My name is Halsey Scheider and today is episode number eight. That's crazy, I cannot believe it. And I am here with Eric Thresher. Uh, Eric is, uh, I've met him one time. We, uh, I, I sold a helicopter to a gentleman that uses uh, Eric's services, which I'm excited to talk about uh, a lot today in depth. Um, and he's also a captain for Air Methods. Uh, so Eric, welcome to the show, man. How's it going? Thank you, Halsey. It's great to be on. I'm, uh, I'm happy to be here. Excited. I have to say, I mean, like for me being the host and you the guest, I think that your setup is actually probably better than mine. You have some <laughs> soundproofing going on there. The lighting looks pretty clean. Uh, you're, you're, you're making me look bad, man. <laughs> I've been doing some experimenting with my uh, home office setup here because I've been doing some little bit of online ground school for guys who are just kind of struggling with a topic or something at, at, at whatever flight school they're working with. And they just, they hit me up, they buy an hour of, of time from me and they just... They asked me, hey, can we talk about this or that? And I got whiteboards set up behind That's me. That's cool. And, you know, we just talked through stuff. So It's such a, like, uh, I mean, with all the different tools today and specifically like with COVID, right? I mean, COVID like made us all this, you know, uh, meetings, you know, Zoom meetings and work yep. from home. And, you know, it really has changed how people view you know, distance, right? I mean, you're in North Carolina, I'm here in Texas. I could be in uh, Zimbabwe and you could be teaching me ground, right? That's right. Um, you know, it's just a really cool concept and it's great for entrepreneurial spirits like yourself uh, that are that want to do more than just uh, what you're already doing, which is a lot, uh, you know, being a full-time air ambulance pilot. So I want to touch on everything about your company, which is called Helicopter Safety Services, formerly Thresh Air. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that or not, but uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, when, when did you change the name? Uh, I actually changed the name. I filed the paperwork probably four or five months ago. It okay, was time cool. to, to it was time to move something uh, you know, more serious sounding. No one, you couldn't tell what Thresh Air was about, so I think something that, a little, that gave it away in the name was a little more appropriate. And uh, uh, hey, and man, I'm all it, about that. We were uh, for about four years. We were uh, Aircraft Brokerage of Texas, ABT, okay. uh, because we're in Texas, duh. You know, and then people were like, well what do you sell? And I guess, do you sell all aircraft? It's like, Oh no, we're only helicopters. And are you only in Texas? It's like, no, we're all over, you know? So right, right. we, uh, we did the name change uh, about a year ago as well to, to sell a copter, which is, uh, just like yours kind of tells, tells you what we do. So yeah. uh, I support that. 
it's sort of like you know you got to fake it till you make it right because i'm a very small company i mean it's myself plus pilots who i'm close to that i contract with to help kind of fill seats for guys that need pilots or instructors sure but a name like that carries a little more weight for sure and just you know and as we grow and get bigger i think it's more it'll be more fitting over time you gotta abbreviate it too like yeah i work for hss you know i own hss like that that really makes it sound official well it sounds like you're really well on your way uh, obviously I've worked with you a little bit in the past and I know that you're just a high level of professionalism knowledge um, and you bring a lot to different students and different parts of the industry so real fast just give us a bit of a recap I know that you've done oil gas news and most recently EMS but why don't you just walk us through your couple minute career path here in the helicopter industry sure so uh, I will say first off that compared to some of your other guests and compared to a lot of the other people we work with and fly with I'm a baby in this industry uh, you know, and, and proud to admit it because uh, I'm a student at heart and always trying to learn something. And I recognize really how little I've, I've been in this. So, you know, I did my first solo flight in 2011. So that's 10 years ago now. Mm-hmm. It was a beautiful summer day, doors off an R22. You know, it was absolutely terrifying. Uh, but progressed on from there, did my work through my ratings. I just did one after another. Like the day I finished a check ride, the next morning I was out starting my next rating, starting my next certificate. Uh, you kind of got to get in check ride mode, you know, when you know you're going to push through all the certificates, just do it, do it, do it and don't stop. But, uh, so I worked through the ratings. I, um, I was answering phones at the flight school at the time. So I was constantly around the the flight school environment and just listening and like, you know, learning over shoulders, you know, like, Oh, okay. That, that Charlie airspace, that makes more sense now without having to pay for it. You know, it's kind of cool. It's great. Uh, then I, I taught at that, at that flight school for a couple of years, uh, here in North Carolina and, uh, uh, they're still around total flight solutions. They've expanded. They're quite busy. A lot of airplane flying now as well, but, uh, I eventually progressed to operations manager of the company, um, kept teaching full time. And then, uh, from there I got my first sort of turbine job, which was, a in a long ranger, um, up in New York city, uh, with zip aviation, you know, there's a bunch of helicopter operators up there. They all run more or less the same way, but it, it's some exciting flying, just kind of being busy. And I just really did one long summer season up there before the Gulf really picked up. And they're like, we need four or seven pilots down here now. And uh, I was in a, I was in a class of like, it was probably 15 or 20, four or seven pilots all within a couple wow. of period that they hired. And uh, so I flew offshore in the Gulf for a little while um, under a contract with uh, Enbridge Energy, flying a couple um, gas measurement technicians around um, around the Gulf. And then, uh, after that, I got kind of sick of the commute and, you know, talking about the work-life home balance, I wanted to kind of be flying in the state that I lived in. It would simplify a lot of things. So, you know, I was living in North Carolina and commuting to Louisiana, um, to fly offshore. So I said, well, let's find something back home. So news helicopter position just sort of magically opened up and, uh, and it was in a four or seven. I was like, man, I can, on the interview, I can hop right in this thing. I've been, I've been flying them every day out in the summer sun, you know, over the Gulf. So I, uh, had a great interview, accepted that job. I did the news for a while with sky five, fantastic, uh, very small operation, really just two pilots and one helicopter. Um, and then, uh, after that, I sort of bided my time and, uh, put in the hours until I could sort of get that first multi-engine job, which uh, was with their methods. And, uh, I started an EC one thirty-five as my primary aircraft, uh, I was promoted to lead pilot of that base. It was a brand new base, which had its own challenges, trying to open a new base and get everything off the ground and running. And then I moved to the nearest base to my house here and switched my primary aircraft to the 429. So I've been flying my primary now is a 429 and also the 135 as the backup. So we still have to Hold on. You got to move closer to your house and you now have to fly the 429? I know. It's terrible. You know, lumbar adjustable <laughs> seats and all. It's terrible. <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> to hear that, man. <laughs> 
I, I have to tangent on that a little bit. I'm trying to remember. I don't think um, we had some practice podcasts prior to actually launching, and one of the practice podcasts was with a 429 driver. And yeah. one of the things we talked about, so I don't think it's actually aired, is um, you know there are the the 429 is a uh, an amazing platform. However, it does come with some set of issues. Um, yeah. You want to discuss that a little bit? Yeah. So it is probably uh, the most pleasurable aircraft to fly that I've ever flown. And I've got uh, probably 11, 12, 13 models, something like that of experience of regular flying of, of different models under my belt. And I always come back to the 429. It used to be the 407. And then, and it was because I hadn't flown the 429 before. <laughs> uh, of course. And, you know, now I'd, I'd be a happy man if I never flew anything other than the 429 for the rest of my life. It's just well, everything from the ergonomics of the cockpit to the available power to how easy the autopilot is to run to j- just everything. No circuit breakers accessible in flight by the pilot. Not a single circuit breaker, right? So wow. uh, just a lot of things were well thought out on that. However, it has its drawbacks in this particular role and others that need weight. So, you know, EMS interiors are heavy, crews are heavy, patients are heavy, stretchers are heavy, all the stuff that goes on board, uh, you know, has a weight cost. And Bell, um, you know, in all their their forward thinking, uh, really wanted to get this 429 uh, in production and get it certified. And they got it certified basically with a 7,000 pound weight limit placed on it by the FAA. Elsewhere in the world, it flies at 7,500 and 8,000 pounds, some even higher. Um, and for public use, it doesn't have those limits, but the FA limits it at 7,000 pounds, which really limits us as far as fuel uh, and range on it when we have to carry a patient and whatnot. So that's that's really the only drawback of the whole helicopter, honestly. I mean, everything I love about it, but we have got to stop for fuel just a little too yeah. often. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, 500 I've, pounds will go a long way. You know? Yeah, I've heard quite a bit about it. I mean, and that is, unfortunately, like you say, I mean, it's uh, as I've never flown it, but, you know, it's a, an incredibly popular aircraft. It's Pilots love flying it, but this is certainly a bit of a Achilles heel for that aircraft, uh, this whole weight thing. Do you, do you know, I mean, is there anything in the works to try to get that fixed? Or, I mean, that might be a little above both of our pay grades, but, it, you know, I'm, I'm guessing EMS operators like Air Methods and uh, other operators that use the 429 have to be pushing pretty hard to be able to increase that weight. Yeah. And so the FAA has basically said, like, listen, you're not going to recertify this exact helicopter into a different weight class. So you, if you want to come out with a second version, we can look at it then. And that's basically what Bell is doing. So they're looking at, they're developing and they've been test flying their 429 EDAT, the electrically distributed anti-torque. And it's got, it's basically removed the conventional tail rotor and put on four electrically driven fans that are built into the vertical stabilizer. It's pretty cool, but it shaves wow. a lot of weight down as well. Because now, if, it, if it's all electrically controlled, there's no tail rotor push rods back and forth. There's no sure. gear boxes out there. There's no any. There's no cable control cables running up the windshield all the way back to the. There's none of that. So, um, and you know, from what I've read, it could lose like two out of the four uh, fans could could go offline, and it could still have enough anti torque for for directional control. But that, so they're looking at an option like that, and and kind of from what I'm hearing is that if some of these operators put in, you know, a minimum order, then Bell will basically commit to producing it and selling it. Uh, but I think they're kind of feeling out the market because they pissed off a lot of 429 operators. Oh, yeah. That, you know, oh, they're yeah. a fantastic company, but they pissed off a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's definitely, uh, it's, it's been a strong talking point, uh, but it's a beautiful aircraft. I actually, you know, you're talking about the news. I do, a, I have a part-time news position. I don't really 
I fly maybe a couple of days a month. Um, sure. but I was at the hangar the other day. We actually have an office there as well. Um, I have like a home office, but the idea of like driving to work and then being in a hangar full of aircraft, including helicopters, they like, I don't know, kind of motivate you to maybe work a little bit harder. So we actually just got some office space there and yeah. some, I don't know whose aircraft it is that the end number is untrackable, but it's, um, there's a four, two, nine parked in the hangar and it's like, I mean, they have it all roped off. It's like a museum, you know, <laughs> and it's just like, you know, we got the little bell jet ranger next to it for the news. Yep. And then this 429, I mean, it's just an, it's, it's a massive aircraft first and foremost. I mean, you're, it is, it's, it's kind of sneaks up on you. You don't realize till you're standing next to it. Like, wow, this isn't an upgraded 407. Like this is a whole different aircraft. Yeah. No. And that's how I felt. I mean, I haven't t- spent a ton of time ever really actually, I think I've been one other time a couple of years ago, you know, in the presence of a 429 and, and just standing by, it was like, oh my gosh, like this is a serious, this is a big boy helicopter for sure. Yeah. Uh, so that's really cool. <laughs> Uh, so you, uh, you know, you, you've worked your way up into an EMS position, uh, but you also of course have your own business, formerly Thresh Air LLC, but now helicopter uh, safety services. So mm-hmm. obviously this a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit, uh, how long have you been doing your own thing and what kind of jump started that? So I started this company about three years ago and it was really when I was flying news full time and I was starting to develop an off time schedule. You know, and I'd finish uh, if I was on morning shifts for that week, you know, we'd work like a week of mornings, week of days. I'd be off at 9 a.m. and had nothing to do for the rest of the day. You know, go go home, spend time with the wife, do some chores around the house. But I was like, man, I, I could I could fly something else. You know, <laughs> yeah. was, it was all part 91. So there weren't any whether there weren't any, uh, you know, flight time limitations or anything like that I had to be concerned with. So. Um, I would, uh, I found a couple of clients who kind of found me and, uh, I said, I started flying with them and teaching them just, you know, primary flight instruction, learning to fly for the first time, you know? And, uh, and I was like, I need to keep doing this. I, I you know, I never kind of stopped teaching, but I said, I need to, do, I need to take this more seriously. Just put something together, form an LLC, organize it, you know, start developing some documentation, some training curriculum and stuff, and then, uh, just kind of making it more official. And, uh, to this day, it's honestly not slowed down. It's, you know, all of my, I've got a website, I've got an Instagram profile, but like literally all of my advertising is word of mouth just from happy clients that have hired me for just a little bit of ground school or something, or to come out and fly their personal helicopter or to teach one of their pilots, this or that. And, you know, things like uh, new airframe transitions are just some of the most fun you can have, you know, taking someone who already knows how to fly and like, yeah, but here's what this helicopter is like, and here's what this one can do. And here's how it's different. And you get to meet a lot of interesting folks that way. So, I mean, you operate in the, in the sense of you can provide pilots for people that just want to pilot. You do uh, flight training as well. Yeah. So by and large, I do most of the, I, I uh, perform most of the services myself. And then I, for the ones that I can't, you know, it's nice to have a problem where you're growing so fast, you can't staff it, you know? So my phone rings and I'm like, well, I, I don't, I can't do that. I'm already booked on that day, but I've got pilots for you. So what I've really done is I've turned, uh, uh, I've taken the direction of this company to be basically a network of pilots that, uh, they're, they're qualified, they want to work and they just don't know how to find work. You know, well, I can find work because my phone's ringing all the time <laughs> and I can't, I can't do it all myself, you know? So, um, I've got a network of good guys, a lot of, uh, current EMS pilots, a lot of current news pilots, guys with an off schedule who want to work some in the off time, you know, and it's, uh, it's fun. It's fun flying. It's something different every day. That's really cool. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, with most other industries, you have staffing companies, right? Where, yeah. you know, if you're able to 
uh, provide someone short-term help or even long-term help or, you know, and plus you expand your reach, right? If you're, if you're in North Carolina and someone needs you in Texas, then, you know, you could pick up the phone and, uh, call someone in Texas. Hey, me, you can call me. I'll go fly. Uh, but no, it's really cool, man. And, uh, starting a business, I mean, it's no joke. It's really challenging. You know, you mentioned, you know, starting an LLC and there's just so much that goes into it where it's, Mm -hmm. uh, it it can actually make doing what you're doing, maybe not as fun anymore. Uh, if, as you just kind of have to kind of push through that, have you had some challenges just on that business side that have almost kind of made you rethink what you're doing? Yeah, just sort of like, how do I track this? Like accounting is not my strong suit. So keeping track of expenses and stuff and just, I use like an app on my phone now to do it and it simplified some things, but like every year going through it to get ready for taxes and stuff. And even though it's very small, you know, that's the stuff that's not my strong suit. For me, I just, you know, be flying all day or teaching ground school all day and just, you know, something flying related, but but the numbers that's, you know. I got it or, or working on advertising. I'm seeing, you know, I've got other friends who have businesses and they're, they have a huge online presence. They're like, Oh, you need to be doing this. You need to be doing that. I'm like, I have no idea how any of that works. Like I have a fairly simple profile. I post videos of just me doing something interesting. I'll post it up there if anybody wants to see, you know, but I I can't, I don't have time to chase the likes and chase the followers and stuff. It's really, my content is really face to face and it's in person, you know, and that's, that's, that's what drives my business. So that sort of thing is tough. I'm not, I'm not in the 21st century when it comes to the social media stuff right now, but <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think that there's kind of both ways, right? I mean, it sounds like you're really busy, right? So, I mean, mm-hmm. one would argue, I talked to someone recently, not in the helicopter world and a kind of a guy that I mentor on a, uh, he does videography and mm-hmm. you know, he's like, man, I'm so busy. I can't even make a website. I said, well, then don't make a website. You know, <laughs> if, if, <laughs> exactly. if the phone's ringing, then, you know, there's nothing that says you have to have a website, right? Right. You're doing um, something right. And social them. media is great. Uh, obviously, we, we utilize some social media and we're expanding social media on, on my side. But, you know, there's, you know, sometimes just specifically in a niche uh, helicopter world like we're in, just word of mouth, being a good person, doing the right things, providing a yeah. great service that people want to talk about, then yeah. that's going to give you the business that you need. I think sometimes actually people get into this, you know, analysis paralysis of starting a business of like, I have to do this and I have to do that. And it's like, well, really, you don't have to do any of that, right? It's uh, some businesses do, right? You know, Coca-Cola's right. of the world and other big businesses, yeah, they have to yep. spend a ton of money on ads and they have to do this and do that. But, you know, when you're a small business and you're kind of finding your footing, you know, cash in the bank is important. You know, I would rather have money in the bank than, you know, spend a whole bunch of money on advertising, you know, specifically in a, in a small niche market. So it's awesome yeah. that you're doing well. Uh, that's, it's good for my business, right? When people are doing well in the helicopter world, specifically small businesses and people are flying helicopters, I love that. So, uh, congrats. It's, you know, three, you said you started now three years ago. Yep. That's hard, man. At three years, that's a big, that's a big, uh, milestone. Uh, and so it's really cool to, uh, to kind of, um, see that success for you. And, and I'm really happy for you. And I think I'm just throwing it out there, but like this whole like teaching ground, uh, you know, from your studio there, I mean, that's come on. I mean, I think that's, that could be a big game changer for a lot of people well, as well. Yeah. And, and, you know, cause like back in the, when I was doing my training, you know, 2010, 2011, like the cutting edge stuff was the 20 year old, you know, CDs and DVDs from King school, you know, that oh, yeah. you just watch these endless videos over and over Martha again. And watching and, Martha and uh, her husband, right? Like, what's, <laughs> yeah. what's her husband's name? John. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah. so, so that was like all you could, there was basically all you could do is sort of going to the flight school and hiring your instructor again. And now of course, the advent of YouTube and everything else, there's a lot you can learn for free online, right? 
right? But mm-hmm. I think there is a specific market that's not really being filled now, especially this distance learning of talk to a flight instructor live and get actual in-depth answers and real world practical answers for, for what your question is. You don't have to watch another YouTube video on it. You don't have to, you know, it's about actually having an interaction with somebody, even if you can't during these COVID times. And it's it, in a lot of ways, you know, I'm cheaper than them having to get in their car and drive to the flight school for a minimum sure. of two hours or three hours or something. And, you know, so it's, and it's, it's customizable. It's kind of like whatever you need, you know? And, uh, uh, so I'm having a lot of fun with that. And uh, it's really That's just awesome. been an hour here, hour there. Just guys that say, Hey, I found you online. I'm really struggling with, uh, with airspace. Can we, can we talk about airspace? I'm like, glad you found me. How did you find me? You know, yeah. and, uh, and let's do it, you know, set up a time and, and, and date and there we go. That's really cool. Uh, we'll do it at the end too, but since we're talking about it, if someone does, uh, want to reach out for some ground help, some pilot services, whatnot, what's the best way that they can get a hold of you? Sure. Easiest way is just go directly to my website, which is www.safehelicopters.com. Awesome. All right. Safehelicopters.com. That's easy. I, I, I can remember that as well. Uh, <laughs> so safe, right? You obviously helicopter uh, safety services, helicoptersafe.com, all these things. There's a lot of safety emphasis. Uh, and in the email that you sent me for on some talking points, you brought up some really cool topics. I just kind of want to dive right into that. And uh, the one, uh, the first one I think is one of my favorites. And this is a great discussion is building comfort and, you know, fighting complacency as you become yeah. more comfortable. Right. And I'm really glad that you made that point um, kind of in some talking points because I haven't touched on that yet in the helicopter podcast. And I think that if anything bites helicopter pilots in the, in the tush is getting too comfortable uh, Absolutely. you know, whether you're flying the news and you're doing the same, you know, 4 a.m. to 9 a.m. shift every day and you're doing the same, you know, orbiting over the same city, you're flying the same A to B milk run for your EMS position, flying offshore, you know, yeah. complacency is truly a killer. So I'm curious to kind of hear your thoughts on how you've been successful in your career flying a multitude of different aircraft, different missions, different profiles in which you've. Uh, maybe felt yourself becoming complacent and what you've done to kind of overcome that and what you do every day. Sure. So, you know, I think one of the most interesting things about working at different jobs in this industry is every company, every operator, every co-pilot, every captain you're training under every check camera, they all have a slightly or very different approach to safety. You know, some of these larger companies have massive safety management systems and, and rules and policies have to be abided by. And these things are binders and binders thick of policies. And others are, listen, just just don't wreck the helicopter and, you know, and just be legal. And that's the whole safety management system you know, for some of these smaller Part 91 operators. A lot of them don't have anything written down or anything formalized as far as safety management. But, you know, something as simple as like an EMS, we do a formalized risk assessment before every flight. And it's literally checking boxes in it with everything from weather to maintenance to it could be anything. Is this flight going to take me past the, the 12th hour of my shift? Does all this stuff, right? And it comes up with an actual, you know, numerical value of risk, which does it exist in real life? No, but it's given us an, an idea of what's our, our risk value involved with making this flight. And, you know, in all the, the part 91 flying that I do. So flying with private clients or teaching students, you know, without, with them not, not having ever worked for a large operator that like makes a numerical risk value or risk calculation like that, they're not really thinking in terms of risk uh, assessment and then risk aversion, right. And how to avoid risk altogether, how to minimize it, you know? And so these are things that these are calculations that we're kind of running in our head throughout each flight, right? As, as you fly more and you get more hours and more experience, you start looking at things in a different way. And I think young pilots, early pilots, new pilots, they really haven't been taught the, that risk assessment skill 
of how to look at a situation and say, is this legal to do? Yes. Is this relatively safe to do? Yes. But is it actually presenting a lot of risk that would, might not exist if we just make the flight tomorrow? Or, you know, it's like, yeah, we are going to be pushing the weather a little bit, but we've also been flying all day. We each only have maybe three hours in this airframe. So low level of, of comfort in this aircraft. You know, this is just too risky given these conditions. Let's wait for higher ceilings or let's wait for the rain to pass through or let's take it over a different route. That's not as much risk if we were to have mechanical problems, need to make an emergency landing, you know, sort of that that hazardous terrain, you know, avoidance. But, uh, you know, risk assessment and risk avoidance and, uh, you know, is something that we're constantly working with. Right. There's no such thing as a risk free flight. It doesn't exist. Every we take a calculated risk every time we leave the ground. So it's how do we sure. calculate that risk? You know, so any skills that we can give new and upcoming pilots from day one to help them adequately assess their own risk once they're able to, right? Uh, we'll prepare we'll prepare them endlessly for the future and and being more successful and being able to say no, you know, because because ultimately when you're hired to fly a job, you're not hired to fly the aircraft. You're hired to to use your judgment to know when to say no. I mean, that's what the, the higher level operators are all looking for is the ability for you to stand up and say, I can't do that. Not safe. Not going to put your aircraft or your passengers and clients in that situation. Can't do it. Yeah. I mean, it's been a big change in the industry over the last, you know, uh, 10, 15 years, specifically on the air medical side. Uh, you know, there, there used to be a lot more of a mentality of dollars and cents kind of over making, you know, common sense decisions. Sure. And, you know, I know that a lot of EMS operators, big operators are pushing towards that, but there's still, like you said, a lot of part 91 operators, whether it's news companies, utility or whatnot that don't have, a, you know, a formal SMS system. Right. Maybe don't operate under a just culture. I think the advent, I don't know yeah. if, if you invent a just culture, but the whole, this whole idea of, Hey, if you break something or you do something wrong, Hey, if you bring it to our attention and it wasn't negligent, then it's going to go through a process, but most likely you're not going to lose your job. You know, right. um, I've, I overtorked a helicopter one time at, uh, at my old, at my old job and I, there was no tattletale that would have said that I overtorqued it. But, right. you know, I went, I told, you know, I was okay with losing my job because A, I didn't want to go fly the aircraft that I just overtorqued to make right. sure that it wasn't, you know, before it got properly inspected. But also, I don't want to put anyone else in that position. Right. You know, right. so I think it's, uh, I felt comfortable because I knew the company that I worked for would look at it like, hey, let's go down of why you overtorqued. And then right. let's see if we can mitigate it. Is it systemic? Is it a problem that maybe. Yep. You know, and it actually found out that we had kind of a creeping collective. And yes, always keep your hand on the collective. But sometimes, you know, you put your hand on your on your leg, and you know, before yep. you know it, I put myself in a complacency situation, right? Um, yep. Caused by you know, kind of a, a flying collective. So, uh, I'm very familiar with the risk analysis myself. My flight school actually implemented that. Would you also say though, within the RA, the risk analysis, that you can find complacency if you're just you know, I, I, I'm guilty. I feel like at my, at my air medical job, there is a risk analysis and sometimes you're just like clicking through the oh, yeah. buttons. You can be pressing. complacent in assessing your risk, you know? Yeah. It's kind of, right? it's kind I mean, of it's, ironic, but absolutely. It's, it's so silly. And <laughs> I think that one portion of it is training people to uh, respect the limits and the understanding of what the helicopter can, can do uh, yep. to you. Right. I, Right. I think that specifically with a lot of the people that you may work with, wealthier individuals learning how to fly, certainly guys that I've dealt with as well, is I feel like I really have to push like, hey, the helicopter is cool and it's fun, but 
it will kill you. Like if you're not, if you're not making the right decisions, you're pushing weather, you're pushing your skill, you yep. misjudge the winds and you put yourself in a weird tailwind landing situation and you settle with power, whatever it might be. Yep. You know, it seems like they don't realize it's just like this fun, cool thing, you know, until it's not. Right. It's always been kind of my thing. Like helicopter's yep. cool until it's not so cool anymore. So yeah. what are some things that you do with your students uh, and your personal self? I mean, to really drive home this 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 idea of not becoming so comfortable that could, sure. you could walk yourself into a problem. So I'll give you an example of good comfort and then maybe an example of complacency that I've seen even recently. So uh, just talking about a flight that I myself made, it was a couple, it was about two weeks ago. It was a night flight. We were going to pick up a patient. Um, I don't remember where from or where to, but it was two or three in the morning. You know, we're all tired. We all get out of bed. We do our walk around. We do the whole procedure. We get in the helicopter and we take off. And, you know, I've got enough time in this bell now that uh, I know where the switches are by feel, right? There's not that many to deal with, but that level of comfort when you need it is saying, I don't need, need to look for that switch. My muscle memory knows where it is. And that goes a long, long way when the shit hits the fan, right? And I think that that is something that's not trained enough in primary instruction too. You know, it's like, yes, look at the switch and verify it and now get to know where that switch is, where it feels. If you had smoke in the cockpit, could you find it, et cetera, right? If you were, if you had adrenaline coursing through your veins in an emergency situation, could you still flip that switch or pull that knob? But, but, you know, so we're flying along, we're at 2000 feet, it's dark out, we're all under goggles. And then uh, we got the patient on board, we're heading to a hospital, you know, and they say, Hey, can you turn the oxygen on? Well, that valve is back behind me. I'm wearing these big bulky goggles on a helmet, you know, I, I know where the valve is. I reach for it, pull it. I say, hey, five minutes later, hey, can you turn the air conditioner down a little bit? It's a little bit uh, cold back here. <laughs> yeah, I can do that. I know where that knob is. It's right back here, you know. And every little thing, they say, can you turn the lights up back here to turn, turn on some of the extra lights? Yep, I can do that. Click, you know, maybe a quick glance to verify, but you don't want to be pulling at your flashlight. You know, I need to be looking outside for things to avoid. You know, the, the, the stuff outside is what's going to kill you. It's not the stuff in the helicopter. So, you know, being able to not have to have your eyes inside all the time is, is really critical. So, and this is something I think it's really, really not taught well enough in the, in the, the budding pilot industry, the, the flight instruction training industries, because, uh, you know, uh, I'm flying with a student in the 44 the other day. And, uh, every time he reaches down to change a radio frequency, he loses 200 feet of altitude, right? I can't blame him. He needs practice, right? But the place to learn how to change radio frequencies is not in the air, right? The place to learn how to manipulate that radio is on the ground. You know, it's like guys who go, who, who, who enjoy shooting, like shooting guns, right? They do a lot of dry fire drills, the ones who practice a lot. There's no reason why we can't do more dry fire drills in aviation. Hook up that ground power unit on the ground, run all your avionics, talk to mechanic if you want to make sure you're doing it safely and correctly, turn on all your avionics and run them. There are now emulators on iPads for Garmin 650s and 750s, 430s, 530s. You can play with all this stuff and get to know it inside and out before you ever even climb in the cockpit. So there's no reason why you need to look at that knob to make sure you did eight clicks, grab the knob, you know, is going to give you the, the small digits and click it eight times. Then just look once and verify done. No altitude loss. Eyes are outside for most of it. You know, so those sort of dry fire drills are stuff that I don't think is done, is done enough um, and taught enough, you know, to primary students as they're coming up. Like, listen, we're going to try and make as much of this muscle memory as possible. Not just the wiggling the sticks part, but all the other little things that come along, you know, so, uh, so, you know, so that's an example of kind of being comfortable in your aircraft and just knowing where things are and it helps you in a time of need. Right now, complacency, sure. right. Something that we're constantly fighting because you can certainly, like you said, get too comfortable. You, when, you know, you take off out of your base or out of your helipad and there's never any traffic. 
There's never any airplanes overhead. There's never any skydivers or parachutes, right? Because you just know the area. Well, one day when you're not looking as hard as you used to, there is going to be something. And we will have maybe caused an airborne collision, maybe have loss of life involved simply because I didn't look outside far enough because I just had that trust because it, it never happened in the past. It's not going to happen now, right? The, the you know, these, these hazardous uh, attitudes that we learn about during our, our CFI training, you know, it's, it's actually true. I mean, this is oh, yeah. flying, flying is really a practical application of human psychology is all that it is, you know, and, and it's a constant experiment. You're constantly learning how other pilots fly and how you fly and how your crew reacts and how you react under stress. And so, yeah, fighting that complacency. And that can mean there there are certain things you can do right so you you open your hangar door you walk up to your helicopter say you're flying an r66 it's your personal helicopter and you're pre-flying the same way you always do you always do this then that then you put the oil in then you do this then you check the controls and you well the next time you come out do the pre-flight in the exact opposite direction take yourself out of your comfort zone and do it intentionally in a way that makes you look at it differently and you will find something you will find something because you are out of your element so there are certain things that it is good to have a routine for, right? If you're learning how to, if you're programming and setting up the, the panel for an instrument approach in the same model that you fly all the time, find your system and stick to it. That way you will know using that checklist, there are no steps left out. However, things like a pre-flight manufacturer has their recommended pre-flight procedure. Do it literally in the opposite order. It doesn't say what order you have to do it in, right? You can do the do verify, do it and then come back to the checklist. Sure. But take yourself out of that comfort zone, force yourself to be uncomfortable and you will learn something every single time. It's it works like magic. I wish more people would do it. I think that's great. Yeah, I mean, I've always kind of uh, had this thought. It's funny that you say this because I actually started doing preflights the opposite direction that I used to, just because the ladder was on that side. I'm like, well, I don't want to walk all the way around, <laughs> and then this just doesn't make any sense. You know, it's kind of the ergonomics of it, but it actually did make me kind of focus a little bit harder on different things. You know, and mm-hmm. and kind of see it from a different perspective. I've talked about that before as like a flight instructor that you start to see flying from a different perspective, and I think that you're almost creating that same different perspective by changing that. And honestly, no one's ever said it out loud to me, so I think that's a really cool teaching point that you just made of, you know, if it's a pre-flight, something that is safe to kind of adjust and look at it from a different angle, you might find something, you know, and, and that's right. a, it's a really cool thing. And, and I agree wholeheartedly with the static training. I think back in the day, I mean, even, you know, when I was training, which is not, I mean, around the same time that you were, technology still was very different than it is today. iPads mm-hmm. weren't a thing. Uh, I remember, I think halfway through my flight training, I saw my first iPhone. So, I mean, things have really changed a lot in like the last 10 years. I remember a lot of what we would do is like look at the, you know, the poster of the interior cockpit and kind of, right. you know, try to figure out. And it, it's somewhat effective, right? But not truly effective. So, if you're out at your helicopter and you're actually, you know, you plug it into the ground power unit, you're checking things, getting comfortable yep. and training that muscle memory, uh, it's a fantastic way to do it. So, um, I think that's awesome. And I think it's a great point and hopefully you can kind of create that muscle memory. And I would just, you know, my two cents on it all as well is, is just always, uh, I feel like I always try to question myself if I feel like I'm doing something that seems like I'm pushing it, rushing it, or even becoming complacent. You know, if, right. if you've looked at the same helicopter, sometimes at an EMS position, right? The helicopter might not fly for like four days, yep. but you still show up and you do a whole pre-flight. Some guys don't. I, I know that firsthand experience. But I always told myself that if I don't go and do that pre-flight this one time, the next time it's going to make it easier for me not to do it. And then you right. create this chain 
of kind Absolutely. of a bad habit, right? And to me, it was like just this consistency of always doing the right thing and then be mad at yourself. Like if, right. if you know, you get in, the weather's, you're not flying all night. You know, you check into your EMS base. It's IFR all night. Oh, I don't need a pre-flight. I'm not going to fly. To me, right. that's a hazardous attitude. It's like, no, you got to go. You got to go pre-flight. Build this routine because if you build a, a routine in which doesn't include doing a good thorough pre-flight, it's just going to be right. easier and easier. It's kind of, it exacerbates itself over time. So right. it's, a, it's a good point. And I often find that as you gain more experience or guys that I've worked with and, hey, I'm going to raise my hand. I've been complacent and I've done things um, where, you know, flying along and I look down like, oh, that switch should probably be on and maybe I should have used the checklist, right? Um, you know, so I'm guilty of complacency. So I'm not trying to call people out here, but I do see it with a lot of higher time pilots specifically that, you know, have really a higher level of complacency. You know, I yep. always talk to people, oh, he flew, you know, in Vietnam and this and that. I feel so safe with him. And sometimes I think in my head, like, well, you know, sometimes that can be a bit of a hindrance. Yeah, well, I mean, the, right? the truth is for a lot of them, their complacency runs deeper. You know, it's only been reinforced over years and years and decades, you know, and so it's even that, that much harder to break out of. So, yeah, I mean, we are absolutely all guilty of it. You know, there, there, there's really, you know, I always I always tell my students there's no such thing as a perfect flight. Right. We all make mistakes uh, at literally every interview I've had for a pilot job. They say, you know, tell me how, how you tell me, you know, how you are as a pilot. Tell me about you as a pilot. I said, I'm not a perfect pilot. I said, I make mistakes. I try not to make the same mistake more than once. You know, and on top of that, I try to learn from other people's mistakes so I don't have to make them all myself. Right. The world is filled with aviators making mistakes. There are reports, there are safety reports, there's there's NASA reports, there's there's you can read through the NTSB's database. You can see exactly what people are doing. You can talk with people at the FBO, at, at wherever, and you can learn from their mistakes without having to put yourself at risk making it yourself. Seriously. You know, so yeah, it's being it's being able to be open and receptive of that and, and first acknowledging I'm not perfect, I'm gonna make mistakes. And then at the end of every flight, and like you said, through each flight. Find something you did wrong, you know, and don't focus on it so much that it detracts, you know, from from the flying experience and, and the focus. But, you know, find what you did wrong and debrief it. And try not to make that same mistake again. I mean, that that part is critical, you know. So, you know, it, I always say if, you know, if you think you've had a perfect flight, you weren't paying attention. You know, you did yep. something that wasn't quite right. Find that, you know. So, you know, it's the same thing as a, you know, a, a wise uh, flight instructor back in the day once told me it was back to pre-flighting. You know, he said, no, hel no helicopter is perfect. They all have something. And if, and if an FAA, you know, an inspector were to come out here and, and ground ramp, ramp check a bunch of people on the ground, he'd find something he could probably ground this helicopter for a, a decal that's peeling off a placard. That's that's faded, yeah, of course. Right. You know, so if he said, if you approach every time you pre-flight your aircraft as though the last guy broke it and didn't tell anybody, he said, you will have a healthy respect for this machine. Every time you walk up to that helicopter. Just you can safely assume the last guy might have broken it and he didn't want to tell anybody for fear of getting fired or he didn't know that he broke it. Right. Or, or maybe nothing happened. But if you treat it like that as this machine with limitations, with faults and you find those faults and you basically gather up all these faults at the end of a preflight and say none of these things affect the airworthiness. I'm safe to fly this. That's ultimately your authority and your responsibility as PIC. You know, so that I mean, that's forgotten. You get the same helicopter every day. You preflight it the same way every day. Some days it's raining. I'm not going to preflight it. They're not going to call me. Well, then the weather clears and now you got a rushed preflight if yep. no preflight at all. And then, you know, on the topic of distractions, right? If I'm flying, knowing full well, I didn't actually preflight the helicopter today. 
That is always in the back of my mind, and I am not 100% there. I am now thinking, what did I miss because I did yeah. pre-flight? What is that sound? You know, all the squeaks are louder at night, right? You're cruising along, and you're like, is that is that normal? Does it always sound like that? Should I land? Should I check this out? And it's like, if you have to think, well, I didn't even actually pre-flight it, so there could be a wrench uh, under the gearbox somewhere. You know, maybe uh, you need to get back into your pre-flight routine. <laughs> Yeah, I have. I found I found some. Uh, I found a wrench one time on a on a deck uh, uh, in an EC one thirty, and you know I think that also some some I think that there's like some pillars that you should always just abide by. Like some some things in the industry that are changing. Like for me personally, like I will never get in a helicopter without first doing a final walk around. Absolutely, I think yeah. that for me a final walk around and then to then go into my next little pillar would be a, you know, three to five second hover check. Yep, to me, absolutely. those are, those are two simple steps that can really save your bacon. Uh, yep. One of my favorite people in the world, Marcus Grukey, helicopter pilot was my boss for a long time. German dude, he always said, save your bacon. So I always like, that's my, <laughs> it's going to save your bacon. I remember he was teaching me the final walk, like that's going to save your bacon, you know. Whether it's saving your bacon because you left your blades tied down, which does happen, right? It so, does. like, get in a habit of keeping your blades 90 degrees, right? If they're 90 degrees in a 206 or, you know, two-bladed rotor system, then they're not going to be tied down. Do right. this final walk around. Um, are you going to be the guy that, you know, gets back from the Grand Canyon tour? We used to fill halfway up and your gas cap is gone, right? Like, yep. you don't want to be that dude because uh, yep. you clearly didn't do a final walk around. And I've actually had moments during a final walk around where uh, I find something like, oh, that's weird. Or, hey, I left my cowling unlatched uh, because I'm not human. Right. We even uh, one time uh, on my EMS job uh, did thorough pre-flight, uh, got, got on a call. And the, the, the way that I worked at Air Evac Life Team and the crew would actually do a final walk around too. That was kind of part of their SOPs. And... I'm going to say this as well in your final walk around. You can become so glued on just the gas cap or the cowling that you right. could have a gorilla looking right at you and you might Absolutely. miss it. Yep. And so we we do our walk around, uh, static walk around, helicopter's not running, I get in and I start it. Start the helicopter and the nurse gets in and she's like, hey, uh, what should I do with the aerosol can? I said, what, what aerosol can? She's like, oh, the one that's above my door. You know, and I'm like, what what are you talking about? And, you know, during we all three of us did a final walk around. None and of us caught it. it. Yep. And then they did their final check. And right above uh, one of the back doors, kind of on the step on the 407, uh, under the rotor, was an aerosol can, a, a degreaser that was left by the mechanic. And it was like, how do you miss that? Right? It was like, it was just staring at you. But I right. became so laser focused on just the primary, hey, my cowlings, gas cap, you know. And honestly... Was I really even laser focused? Maybe I was becoming even just complacent in my walk around itself. And so it just shows like you let your you let yourself lapse for, you know, one second. That could yep. really be a detriment. We could have taken off most likely the aerosol can falls, hits the ground, not a big deal. But what if it falls as we're getting forward airspeed, knocks out my tail rotor? You know, right. there's just a or, lot of things that could have happened. Or nothing could have happened. You never could have realized that you, you made never that known mistake. It. Yeah. You know, and what and, is it you know, next they, time, you know? Yeah. They talk about that too. And I don't know who came up with this. I think it's a long time ago, but it's this rule of 300. Have you heard of that before? I don't think so, no. Yeah. So I'm sure listeners can vet me on this. And I don't I don't know who, who said it, who came up with it. I think, it ha I think whoever did was 
long before the advent of helicopters. And it's essentially this mindset of like, you can do the wrong thing up to 300 times and then it's going to bite you in the butt on the 300th time. So you can, you can have a long career of building bad habits that lead to a negative result. And the whole purpose is, is like, don't allow yourself to ever get into this mindset where, you know, you're relying on being safe for 300 times, right? Create this good habit. So it's, this rule doesn't apply to you. And I think that's the problem though. I mean, uh, historically, right? The helicopter, even if you don't pre-fly it, most likely it's not going to crash. Like most likely it's going to be okay. Right. And on the 300th time, it's not going to be okay anymore. And yep. so if you create this negative habit, this rule of 300 almost allows you to just become more complacent until it finally bites you in the, in the butt. So yep. I think it's just really important as a helicopter pilot. And, and I appreciate it. I'm happy to hear that your service and, and your teaching is focusing on this complacency, creating good habits, uh, doing static ground training. I think that was one of your best points. If, if you are new to flying, if you're at a flight school, you own your own helicopter, whatever it is, uh, I hope that you take Eric up on that because, you know, you know, practicing, getting that muscle memory while you're not in the chaos of le learning how to fly and just trying not to die. I, I think that's fantastic. So that's really cool. Now I have to say, it's kind of funny. I was reading your email prior and I was, I saw this Thresher's 10% rule and uh, full disclosure, we've met one time. I forgot that your last name was Thresher. And I'm thinking like, what's this Thresher 10% rule? I should know this, you know? Um, <laughs> and then I read to the bottom well, of the It's not in the books yet. <laughs> oh, his last name is Thresher. So what is, uh, what is this, this rule that you've created? And um, I'm very curious to hear all about it. So the 10%. Uh, this comes from, uh, and, and many people uh, that I've talked to in the industry would argue that it's maybe higher, but this comes from the fact that uh, over the years I've observed that everybody, absolutely everybody, from pilots to crew members to mechanics to spectators, from experience to inexperience, absolutely everybody loses 10% of their brain capacity in and around a running aircraft. Everybody. Never fails. 10,000 hours of, of time in a 206, you're 10% dumber the second you, you push the starter. Right. Yep. Uh, you've been you've been flying. You've been working around helicopters as a mechanic forever. Those blades are turning. You are that close to walking to the tail rotor, no matter how comfortable you are. It's like getting back to complacency. But it's it's what it really is, is, you know, it is a stressful environment. Bring being around a running aircraft that takes that's one of the hardest things to adjust to as a new student is like to do regular things like move my left hand, move my right hand. Those are things we're used to doing. But not when a screaming four-cylinder engine behind you is running, spinning blades over your head. Yep. The whole thing is shaking. The doors are off. There's wind. There's a guy next to you named John who you don't know. And he's like, left pedal, man. Left pedal. Come on. <laughs> you know, and you're like, I'm just terrified. I have no idea what I'm What's doing. You know, <laughs> you know, so, but it like it carries on. You know, I, we, were, we were, I was at an EMS base. This was up in the Northeast. I was picking up some overtime and uh, we were, we were training up some new crew members who had been working on the ground forever, you know, paramedics and nurses, and they were just transitioned to the flight line. And uh, we're sitting there idling. We're talking, we're discussing the weather, we're discussing fuel and we're looking at daylight. And uh, someone in the back says with more experience than I says, Hey, should we grab the goggles before we take off? It's like one o'clock in the afternoon, but it's going to be dark in four hours. Any delays, we're going to need goggles. I say, uh, yeah, I'm going to leave it at idle. If you're comfortable, hop out, go grab some goggles, bring them back, you know, go out the same door, come make in the same door. And uh, he said, okay, Roger. All right. He uh, unplugs his helmet. I could hear him go, tink, unplug the helmet, takes his helmet off, then gets outside the running helicopters, the EC-135. And the second 
he reaches about my shoulder. I see him going, ah, because it's hot and loud and there's debris and stuff. I mean, the thing's running. It's not idle, but it's still underneath the running <laughs> helicopter. helmet. It's like, yes, yeah, so if you if, if you were watching someone do that, you'd be like, that's dumb. Why didn't he just wear his helmet? But there he made the mistake himself. We all are operating under diminished mental capacity when we fly. This from this from really from the second you start walking up to the helicopter, your body starts arming itself for this experience it's about to have. And it's why we say things do, and say things weird and do things weird. So, so you know, for for one thing, uh, I can say that uh, it's if you're a flight instructor, ask your student. Uh, this is just sort of a trick to catch yourself, right? Ask your student if it's okay if you record a lesson, not for their sake, but if they want to record, they can have a, a copy of it too. Watch yourself teach. Listen to the words you use, the the you know the things you do with your hands and stuff, and you'll go back and watch yourself and probably hardly recognize yourself. You'll find that you stutter, that you repeat yourself in a way that's not healthy sounding, you know. And your student is hearing this and maybe not picking up on all of it. But when you take yourself out of that environment and you listen to yourself, like I talk like that when I'm teaching, like God, what am I thinking? <laughs> like I can give you the beautiful, most beautiful ground lesson on it in the classroom. And then you put me in the helicopter and, and I'm a bumbling idiot, you know, but it's, it's true. We all, we all have that 10% degradation. Some more, honestly, some less. Yeah. But I mean, I would, it's, I would be in the camp of almost saying that, like you said before, some would argue that it's even higher than 10% yeah. because and, I think that we're is, fighting adaptation, right? I mean, how long have humans been flying since what, right. 1904? You know, we're right. not meant to fly. It's like being on the water too. It's, you know, I think a lot of the right. same, um, principles that we bring to flying also is, you know, for, for those that choose a path and, you know, more of the Marine style right. of, you know, we're not meant to be on the water. We're not meant to be in the air. Obviously right. gravity is very, very, uh, intense <laughs> and yeah. it almost seems like, you know, yeah, the engine's running, you know, you got your little amygdalas, which I think is your fight, flight, freeze, yeah, you know, uh, yeah. you know, it's like, you know, it, those are like, hey, this is not this is not normal. By the way, like, right. you know, we've been we've been working for you know ten thousand years now, and this is still really, <laughs> this right. is very uncomfortable for us. So and, I would and so I would one hundred percent agree. Yeah, so it's like, so what do you do with that, right? Like, well, first you just have to acknowledge I'm dumber the second I get in the aircraft or get near the aircraft. So that's actually powerful information to have. If you are armed with the knowledge that you are more likely to do something stupid. Right. You can take steps to mitigate that stupidity. Right. We're never going to get it back to zero percent. I'm never going to be a 100 percent mental capacity, sharpest person in the world when I'm in an environment like that, no matter how long I do it for. But what we can do is say, I know that I am pre armed here to maybe make some stupid decisions because of the stress involved with flying. When I'm going to make a decision to make an honest evaluation of why, why do I want to do that right now? Is that really let's let's not do that. Actually, it was just. It was sort of a momentary thing, this choice that I'm going to do this maneuver or do that, or I'll just turn with the tailwind. It's not very bad or whatever. It's like, actually, how hard would this be to explain to someone later, maybe an accident investigator, you know, and uh, uh, another wise instructor, Steve Merritt, he passed away not too long ago in a a Cessna, unfortunately, that had suffered an engine failure. But um, he, uh, one of the best instructors I ever flew with, and he was an airplane instructor. I did some airplane training with him. And, you know, we used to joke, we'd bounce stuff off each other. I was flying with helicopter students. He's flying with airplane students. And we'd come, we'd swap stores with each other. He was running the, the, the airport up in uh, Lewisburg, North Carolina at the time. And uh, just fantastic guy. Friends everywhere. Everybody knew Steve, you know. But uh, we'd go over there and we'd swap stories. And I said, Steve, what do you, what do you, what do you brief your students on for, for pre-solo flight? Like right before they go solo, what do you, what do you tell them? You know, because he says, well, I've asked guys, ask all the time, what can I do? Can I do this? Can I do that? Can I do power off 180s? Can I do this and that? And he says, you know, he's like, I've been teaching this for 40 years. You know, he says, 
I tell them they can do whatever they want as long as they can explain to the accident investigator. He said, and that keeps them from doing all this stuff. You know, it's like we kind of carry that attitude ourselves forward. Like if you're about to make a decision, right, or put yourself in a scenario, could you sit down in front of a panel of people that would love to put you away because of loss of life or property damage that would love to put you away, take your certificates or worse because of the choices that you made? Could you defend those choices to those people? And if you abide by that sort of policy, you will find yourself no longer doing stupid stuff. You know, when uh, we're all new and stuff, hot dogging was kind of like, you know, it was like expected. And like you see another pilot with a little more time hot dogging in that R44 out there. And you're like, wow, he's really good. He's got really good control he's, over he's that. He's the thing. best. Yeah. <laughs> and as time goes on, you like start looking at that as like, well, that's dumb. Well, that's yeah, mostly risky. Not, not well, very you know? smart. And it's crazy how that, you know, that attitude sort of changes with time, you know. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's, um, you know, you see it all the time on Facebook, right? I mean, there's a lot of armchair quarterbacks, and, and usually yeah. it's for good reason, you know, because people post, like, sometimes people will post a video, I'm like, what are you doing, you know? <laughs> I know someone that recently posted, you know, a video on a Facebook story of him flying, you know, IFR in his R66, you Great. know, and that's, he's like, you know, he's not only in IFR in an uncertified aircraft for IFR operations, but he's filming it while he's doing it. Like, you know, how, you know, uh, what could go wrong? And it's, it's, yep. this it's, is the stuff the NTSB loves to have. Oh, you know? yeah, of course. And it's just, you know, it's, it's too bad that, uh, a lot of people don't take that same respect. And, you know, I think that it's, it's our body, you know, in anything that we're doing, right? We're always kind of fighting what, our brains want us to do versus what we know is maybe more appropriate, you know, on a cognitive level. Right. So it's like, you know, your body might say, or your brain might say, Hey, go and do this or do that. Where it's like, you're almost saying, Hey, let's slow down for a second. Really allow our cortex to think about it. Yeah. You know? Um, and, and the, and the amygdalas are important for human survival, right? Like if you're driving and there's a Ford coming at you head on, you're not going to go and, you know, analyze, oh, it's a Ford with a blue stripe. Right. Oh, I'm going to swerve now, right? Like you don't want your cortex making immediate decisions. You want your amygdala right. to fire and say, hey, you know, crank over here. Yeah. And I think that in helicopter flying, you know, sometimes we have to rely on the amygdalas, right? The engine fails, you know, do it, do it, do what you know is is remembered and react at that moment. And, you know, I then you can kind of get that cortex involved and start actually sure. cognitively thinking of the situation. Okay. Hey, I did what I got to do. I got my landing spot down here now. And you can really start actually bringing your brain back into the process, right. but even just bringing your brain into the process of everything we do and always questioning yourself. Hey, you right. know, I, I even remember like, I know it's maybe it sounds silly, but you know, even being a professional pilot, I'm going to go land on a hospital pad. Like I'm always thinking like, okay, like double are the winds actually coming from here? I'm halfway right. through my approach. Does it does it seem like the winds are doing the same thing up here that the little sock says at the hospital pad? Right. And does my power kind of match what my experience is? I'm always kind of questioning the situation to not just put myself in a in hopefully a poor situation. And sure. you know, I think that's the hard part of being you know a pilot, right? Is 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 we are so human, and that really gets in the way um, yep. of making good decisions and hot dogging and. Specifically with some of the people that you may work with, with that are not professional pilots, right? Guys that are more hobbyists. There's a lot of really uh, good pilots out there that aren't professional pilots. There's also a lot of really wealthy people that don't make the best pilots. Uh, sure. I always kind of tell people that 
gravity doesn't necessarily care how large your bank account is. Nope. Um, it does it, not discriminate. You know, it, it actually seems to want to kill you more often. Um, you know, so, <laughs> you know, I hope that, I hope that there's some people out there that can take some true merit in that and kind of slow down, uh, recognize that you're already at a disadvantage because you're in this crazy environment, you know, that, I still, right. I mean, I, I look at helicopters, I look at airplanes and I'm amazed and then let alone right. I'm flying a helicopter and I'm like, what, what is going on here? Like this is, right. this is PFM, right? Pure freaking magic. You can also yeah. use a different <laughs> word, but you know, there's just so much going on that really is amazing, but also at, at any point will kill you. Uh, right. And you can and induce that. This starts at day one, right? For if, if you've got a, fl- a student or you're overhearing students being trained, you, you know, what you don't want to do which is what is always done is that we're training them like don't worry you'll get used to it this is the new normal for you you're, this is helicopters this is what helicopters do this is what they sound like you're going to get used to it the, it should never be normal and that's the healthy way to look at it is listen you're never going to completely adjust to this you need to be protecting yourself up here you need to have heightened senses your body's trying to protect itself listen to it you know yeah and that it actually does improve your hearing and improve your sense of vibration and temperature changes and stuff because your body is armed for like that fight or flight like you're saying it's so you cool know? yeah and listen to those sensations so these they're, they're marvelous and miraculous machines for them to be able to trigger that sort of response in us and then have us go use some of our higher level brain function while all that's going on to to fly an instrument approach or something like that or you know to to do some of the things that take a couple more steps like it's actually a a pretty amazing sort of experiment happening in every cockpit of you know flying around the world right now yeah it's really cool and and i definitely feel like the industry is moving in a direction of safety and you know talking about these things openly and not making it you know the bottom line is less important than you know than than getting your crew home safely or getting yourself home and being able to make that decision. So, you know, I think it's, it's good to see that the, the industry as a whole is moving that direction. You know, unfortunately we still have accidents, you know, quite often. And Mm -hmm. it does seem like a lot of the accidents are seldomly the helicopter, right? Got some freak ones, you know, bird takes out the, you know, the pitch link on your rotor system. I mean, that's just unlucky, you know, Um, you know, or your rotor falls off, you know, whatever it might be. I mean, the helicopter can fail, but it seems like more often than not in my, experience that some of the people that I've known that have uh, uh, that have perished in a helicopter accident it's not always some bit of a surprise of like oh you know I, I guess I might have maybe saw that coming and mm-hmm. I know that sounds kind of crappy to say but it's really true it's this mindset that sometimes some people bring into the flying environment and I'm guilty of it I've, I've done things that you know I'm like that could have killed me and that was really absolutely stupid. You know, I think we're all guilty and I think that we have to know our vulnerability, right? Hazardous attitudes are silly, but they're so true. You know, being Mm -hmm. invulnerable and being macho. And I mean, these are, you see it all the time. You know, you read these reports and it's like, okay, I I know what what are the five antidotes, you know? And it's like, this can happen to me. And it's like, it certainly can and it will. You know, if you keep doing what you're doing, you will kill yourself. And so I think it's really important that people just, you know, I always say, take it seriously. This is a big, uh, big, crazy, fun thing that we do flying helicopters. But if you don't have this higher level of professionalism that you bring to the entire operation, then you really could, eh, you know, kind of bite yourself in the butt. So, you know, uh, man, I love talking that kind of stuff. And this is cool. This is the first episode that we've actually really dived into talking about safety and whatnot. I'm kind of cutting my teeth trying to figure out how to host this thing. And um, <laughs> we've been kind of doing A to B career path stuff, which is cool. And I hope a lot of people have taken uh, a lot of 
interest in that. And I know that they have, but it's really cool to really sit down and start talking cheddar here uh, in regards to helicopter safety. And I feel like this is a topic that can be talked about forever, but we're coming up on Absolutely. our time here. Um, Eric, thank you so much, man. It's, this has just been uh, an absolute uh, pleasure to have you on talking For about safety. Um, talk, you know, it's great to hear your perspectives. You bring up some really strong training objectives and points. So I really hope that our listeners out there that are maybe in that training environment are listening to some of that advice, but also some experienced pilots are also kind of thinking, you know what, this thresher 10% rule, maybe there's something to it, you know? Uh, so I think that's really cool. <clears throat> Excuse me. If someone wants to get a hold of you again, just reminder one more time, what's the best way to do it? Yep. Just go direct to my website. <laughs> safehelicopters.com www.safehelicopters.com safehelicopters.com you can provide pilot services you do yep. flight instruction you also are doing uh, you know zoom style um, yep. uh, ground, ground school, and- ground school yep. which sounds cost effective and it seems like a great way so if you are uh, learning how to fly and you are stumped on a topic specifically uh, weight and balance don't call me call eric uh i'm sure eric can and can uh can can get you all sorted out but eric thank you so much anything else that you'd like to finish with uh no it was great to be on thank you for having me halsey man let's let's make it a routine man let's get you on soon okay let's do it i'd love to thanks so much eric we'll talk to you later bud take care thanks oh and i have to do my podcast job Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you like, please press like, subscribe, download, whatever it is. We're on all most uh, podcast platforms, Spotify, iTunes, etc. You can also check us out on our Celicopter YouTube. We post these videos, um, or you can just listen to us. So I really appreciate all the positive feedback. Uh, people are downloading. People are enjoying uh Please keep messaging me. It's so fun to connect with everyone from uh, not just here in the States, but all around the world. So I really feel like this uh, helicopter podcast is creating a network and a network of uh, really awesome people. So thanks, uh, everyone, for making that possible. And we'll get uh, next time uh, for the helicopter podcast. As always, a special thanks to Celicopter for producing this podcast. Specializing in helicopter evaluations, faster sales, and superb service, Celicopter is the go-to agency for clients expecting immediate results. Celicopter's team of helicopter professionals are the best in the business. Using their aviation expertise, a nationwide network, and a proprietary 76-step listing strategy, Celicopter will convert your listing from Mayday to Payday. Ready to get started? Text HELICOPTER to 1-855-CELICOPTER. That's HELICOPTER to one 855 735-5226 and a Celicopter pilot agent will reach out. Celicopter. List it. Sell it. Done.